All right. Well, thank you, Greg, for leading us this morning and uh, for leading us in communion. It's an honor to be with you here this morning. I'm Tim Rogers, lead pastor here at Grace Point. Um, and again, welcome to those who are watching online. Honored to have you here with us. Um, and thanks for the, the medley as well, leading us through uh, those years. Uh, some of you have no idea what those songs were, and, uh, and others do. Um, but it brought back different memories for me, so appreciate uh, leading through that. Well, um, I don't know if you all know this, but uh, last month in London, um, there was a, a painting, this painting right here, that had something happen to it. This painting is the Van Gogh's 1888 painting called, of all things, Sunflowers. Don't know how he came up with that. You know what it's valued at now? Somewhere in the couple hundred million dollar range, which is wild, pretty amazing. I don't know how they value it like that, but whatever, it is what it is. It's a, evidently an original on display in a museum in London. And last month in October, there were some climate protesters who had something to say and they wanted a platform. And so what they did is they took some tomato soup with them into the London Museum and threw cans of tomato soup on Van Gogh's sunflowers. And then they glued themselves to the wall, that's true, uh, and were later taken in by the police. They wanted to get their message across and thought this was a good way to do it. A masterpiece and original meets Campbell's tomato soup. Now, isn't that an interesting story? I can feel the gasps even in the room to think that something like this would happen. Isn't that wild? And so in this way they got the chance to share their message. It just was maybe in a way that you or I might not prefer. And as I thought about this story and what actually happened here and what it did to this painting, I thought um, in many ways our lives are not unlike this painting. And while this is worth a couple hundred million dollars and it's irreplaceable, I started thinking about you and me and how if it's true that God has made you in his image, if he has made you as a creative and created being, that your value is even greater than Vincent Van Gogh's sunflowers. And at the same time, I also think that life is full of sometimes pain and grief and difficulty. Life is full of things that sometimes we throw at ourselves or others throw at us or the world throws at us. And we begin to look at this thing that God has made and begin to devalue and miss, can't see the beauty of what God has given to us. These things I'm going to just simply call accusations. Accusations that sometimes we throw at ourselves. Anytime that you hear yourself or someone around you be like, yeah, I should have or I shouldn't have done that. Oh, I should have done something different. I shouldn't have eaten so much, right? I should have responded differently. I should have been more thoughtful. I should have been more careful. Right? These words of condemnation, they're not unlike Campbell's soup being thrown right on the image of God. Like, I should have, I should have, I should have, I should have. I'm condemning, I'm accusing, I'm accusing. If you know people, sometimes people are accusing you of things. Sometimes people throw accusations on you. Like, you're the problem. You don't listen well. This is why I got out of a relationship with you, right? Like, you're the problem. Pointing out all the things that you do wrong, things that I do wrong, throwing soup on you, throwing soup on me. And sometimes just the world feels like it throws soup on us, if you will. What a funny analogy. I never thought I'd be saying that, the world throwing soup on people. But I think you understand what I'm saying. The world can send you the message like, hey, you're not going to ever get that job, right? Uh, you're never quite qualified for that one. 
just don't worry about it. Someone else will get that, but you can qualify for something smaller. But let me throw something on you and throw something on the image of God and, and see what I can do to deface it. And, and all of us grow up in a world in which accusations sometimes are leveled against ourselves by us, by others, or by the world. That's what I think happens. It's a desire and an attempt, I think, to deface the image of God in each of us. And what we do with that is different for each person. So some of us try to scrub the soup off of our image, and we try to work hard so that we can show again how valuable we are. Some of us go on a diet and some exercise. Some go to work every day super early and come home super late. Some of us are committed to our children and our grandchildren or to whatever it is that we might do. And none of that is bad in and of itself unless its attempt is to work those accusations off of us so that we can find value again. And one of the things that I'm convinced that, that Paul, an early follower of Jesus, wanted the early church to understand is what actually Jesus does for us. And when I think about what happened in this London Museum last month, I think there's something there that's really, really powerful for us to pause on for a minute. Because what Jesus actually did on the cross for us applies to this very image or analogy that I'm trying to use. So in this series, what Jesus really does, I'm trying to take an early letter from Paul to the church and highlight that Jesus isn't just an image or an icon or a vibe, but Jesus actually does something. And Paul, an early follower of Christ, wanted us to understand what those things were. And so I'm asking the question, what does Jesus really do? In week one, I talked about Jesus actually does, if you will, redemption. He redeems us. In week two, I talked about how because Jesus creates, he has authority over that creation. Today, in the third week, I want to talk about this simple but powerful idea, Jesus actually reconciles. Jesus actually reconciles. Now, what in the world does reconciliation do? What does reconciliation do? And this is what I want to talk about this morning. Reconciliation does at least two things that I'm going to talk about today. First of all, it restores friendly relationships. That's, you, you understand that in your own personal relationships. If you have, you're at odds with someone, when you are reconciled, you come back together, you have friendly relations again. Secondly, it also frees us from the power of corrosive accusations. We don't always think about this as an implication of reconciliation, but it is. And I want to make the case that Paul wanted the early church to understand this deeply, which is why he wrote about it in the section of Scripture we're going to be in this morning. And so if you have your Bible with you, I want to invite you to turn to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians is the small little letter in the right two-thirds of your Bible. If you don't own a Bible, there's a Bible in the chair near you. We want to give that thing to you. And in Colossians, um, you, will, you will find that. You can look up on your phone, on version, whatever you use. But you'll find that again in the right two-thirds. Colossians chapter 1, we're looking at verses 19 to 23. I'm going to read a few of those verses and pause and comment along the way. Again, keeping in mind that Jesus, of all the things that he does, he reconciles. So let's look at it here in verse 19, reading from the New International Version. For God was pleased, verse 19, to have all his fullness dwell in him meaning in Christ, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Let's pause it right there and just look at those first two verses. Look at verse 19 again. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. I need you just for a minute um, to teleport back to the little town, the town of Colossae, and remember that Paul is writing to a church that is brand new and understanding Christianity because Christianity is brand new. 
And the, the church is looking at this man, Jesus, and they're saying, who, who is he? And what Paul is doing is he's taking the weight of all of Jewish tradition, all of history, the God who parted the Red Sea, the God who gave the Ten Commandments, the God who called down fire with Elijah, the God, the God who delivered the people of Israel from Egypt, the God who created, the God who sovereignly, powerfully managed and created the universe, that God, Paul is saying, all that you know about the power and strength, God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in Christ. And he's trying to take that picture of a powerful Old Testament God that was known by Yahweh and say, the same fullness of that God exists in Christ. And that becomes important in a minute. It becomes very important in a minute when we think about what kind of authority Jesus has to do what Paul is claiming that he has authority to do. And what he wants to do with him, verse 20, through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Again, reconciliation is about making friends with all things. All things are brought together under, under Christ's work of reconciliation. It's almost like he looks at the world, almost as if God looks at the world and sees the strife, sees the anger, sees the discord, sees the division. I don't know, maybe he's watching TV before a political campaign is about to finally come to culmination. Anyone tired of that? Yeah, you can feel that. I don't care what side you're on. I think we're all tired of the sides and the rhetoric and the anger and the division and the fear. And, and that represents part of our world, right? And part that we don't like. It's as if God looks out there and says, I know all those things exist. I know people want to drive you by fear. I know they want to sell you something based on anger and, and rage. I know they want to paint someone else as an enemy and someone else as a good guy and make it binary like that. I understand that's the way it works. So what I want to do is I want to, I want to bring peace to that whole, that whole mess. I want, to, I want to reconcile all of that. I want to reconcile all of that to me because I created a world meant for peace, not meant for this kind of strife and anger. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to give all authority to my son. I'm going to send him to earth and let him die on the cross so that in that he can reconcile all things, all the fear that you feel, all the anxiety you feel around this season and this moment, all the things that bring you grief and trauma and pain. There's a chance to have all of that healed and, and brought together in a friendly way that you can become, again, a friend of God, the one who made you. And this is a really, really powerful idea right here. And this idea of reconciliation sometimes can live in our mind like, like it just lives in a metaphysical environment. But look at what Paul does with it in verse 20 again. He says he's going to reconcile all things, whether things on earth or in heaven. And then the last phrase is very important, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. What he's doing there is he's taking an idea, a philosophical idea about reconciliation, and he's, he's tying it to a historical event, to the cross. He says, at the cross, I want to take you to history here. This isn't, Christianity isn't just a, a house of ideas or beliefs. Christianity doesn't exist because we have a good belief system. Christianity is built on a historical event centered on the cross. And Paul is saying, if you look at the cross and the evidences for Christ's work on the cross, the actual historical event of that, if you come to faith and believe that Jesus, in all of his fullness, God, on that Friday, died on that cross, then on that Sunday was raised. If you look at that historical event and believe in what happened, what you get 
is reconciliation. It's not just a belief in the middle of nowhere, anchored to nothing but good ideas or good dreams or hope. It's actually tethered to a historical event, so important for the early roots of Christianity. And that's why he says that here. Now, I would ask the question, why do we need reconciled? Look at verse 21. Verse 21, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. That's a strong verse. It's one that I don't really like to keep reading, but it's, I think it's very important. I believe that there is both dignity and depravity in all of us, that God has made us in God's image, and that's the beauty, if you will, of the sunflowers of Van Gogh. But at the same time, there's also depravity in all of us, and so there's tomato soup on all of our pictures. We have chosen sin and and harm. We all have. It has been put on us. We have chosen it ourselves. We've all done things we wish we wouldn't have done. We've all done things against the will and direction of God. All of us. We share that. Okay, We share that. And so it doesn't bother me. I think it's just important to call it what it is. We would like to hide our sin. We'd like to hide the bad things, but we're only healed when we see them, right? And we're only healed when we can talk about them and understand what they really are and what they do. So this is where Paul is just very honest. We were all alienated from God. It's not as if we were once good and now we're better. It's actually, no, we were once enemies of God, and that's what sin does. And it's very important to see that in your life and for me to see it in mine, that that's what sin really does. It really is ugly, and it's a mess, and it can create a lot of hardship and confusion. The good news is, the good news is, verse 21 isn't the end of the letter. Look at the next verse. This verse I love, and this is kind of the main verse that I want to focus on this morning. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body. Again, an allusion to history and real events. He has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. Christ's death takes us as enemies from God and through faith cleans us and brings us free from accusation before God the Father, which is wild. Now, let me go back to this painting for a minute. Now, some of you may know this and some may not, but I want to show you the picture of the painting after the people in the museum, uh, curators, is that the right term for that? Um, We're able to take it off the wall and, and clean it and deal with it. Here's what it looks like now. You know why that doesn't look any different than the first picture you saw of it? The reason for that is because there is a small layer of glass over the painting that the museum has installed on all of their paintings to protect it from any kind of ultraviolet light or anything coming in, or in the off chance that some protesters would come with soup and throw it on them, it wouldn't actually harm the painting, which is amazing. It's actually evidently not visible to the naked eye, but it is there, this small, thin, little layer. And as I thought about the power of that little, small, thin layer of glass, I thought about what Christ has done for us. See, some of us, the accusations that we throw at ourselves or that other people throw on us, we've allowed them to stick. But what Christ has done, he says, listen, I'm going to put a little, little glass over your image that I've put on you, all right? And if you believe that all the fullness of God dwelt in Jesus Christ and and that historical moment on that Friday died on the cross and on that Sunday rose again to life, that if you believe that, it is through faith, not just faith in faith, 
but faith in that historical event, here's what you get. You get this glass, if you will, right across and over the image of God in you so that you are free from accusation. There is nothing that can stick to that anymore. The beauty of the image of God, the strength and the dignity of how God has made you is going to be there. All the things that have happened to you or the things that people have said of you or the messages that you send about yourself or the times when you wallow in your own sin and shame and guilt and you throw tomato soup on yourself for all that you've done, that can't stick to you anymore once you have believed in Jesus Christ as your Savior. Such a powerful idea of reconciliation. It has covered you with beauty and strength. It's something that I can, and I know that you know you can't, ever get on your own. And so what I might try to do, and maybe you try to do sometimes, I just try to scrub it off, right? Like when I fail and when I mess up, I just try to work harder or ignore it or diet or look better or just apologize. Sometimes that's necessary to do, but I try to clean it up all by myself. And what Paul is saying to the early church is, and to any of us who end up following Christ, you know what Jesus actually does for you? He puts that glass over you, if you will. He reconciles you so that you are free, 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 free from accusation. You're free from accusation. You are clean. There's no blemish on you anymore. And that's what he says in verse 22. Now, it gets a little confusing we got to honestly continue in this passage because Paul adds something, and it can seem a little funny. Verse 23, he puts it this way. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. Now, this can seem like a condition. This can seem like, well, you can be free and experience the freedom of Christ if, if you continue in your faith. As long as you're faithful and consistent, then you can have the freedom that God has for you. So just be faithful. Come to church every week. Read your Bible daily. Make sure you have the right you know, spiritual practices set up and going if you do that. I just need to speak for a minute, and I won't be long at all on this, on, on Greek grammar. Aren't you, this, is, this is exciting. You come to church and think, you know what I need this morning, especially after the Phillies lost? I need a little bit of Greek grammar in my life. I know. I know you all did. So you're welcome. Here you go. There are four different conditional statements in Greek. Okay? The first class conditional statement is what is written here. Here's why that matters. In Greek, the first class conditional statement assumes that the premise is true. The first class conditional assumes that the premise is true. Let me put that in regular English for you. I coach basketball at Pequot Valley. Let's say I were to tell you, if our high school basketball varsity team, if our high school varsity basketball team were to play our elementary basketball team, our high schoolers would win. Isn't that amazing? Now, I suppose it's possible that if our juniors and seniors were playing our second graders, somehow they could possibly lose. I'm trying to imagine how that could possibly work. I think we would all quit basketball and walk away because that would be horrible. Now, I have used the word if in that statement. If our high school varsity team were to play them, then they would win, because I assume that to be true. That's a first-class conditional statement. It's a premise assumed to be true. It's, in fact, I may as well just say, listen, 
our high school team will beat them, guaranteed. Now, I can't guarantee because it hasn't happened yet, but I mean, you know, and I know, it's, it's, it's assumed to be true. And that's exactly what Paul is doing here. He's just assuming this is, this is true. If you continue in your faith, and let's be honest, most people, not all people, most people who come to faith in Christ and experience kind of a regeneration, a renewal of their heart, continue to try to pursue that life and joy and freedom in Christ. And that's what he's saying. Like, if, you, like if you're in, you're going to continue it. Like, because that's just what people do who are Christian. Now, you and I both know I have friends, you have friends who have walked away from the faith. I get that. I understand all of that. All that he's saying is, let me, let's just assume this to be true because it is. In this statement, he's saying, most people who come to faith just continue to walk together. And it's meant actually to be an encouragement to endure. What he's saying is, if you're part of the family of God, this is what the family of God does. People endure hard stuff. They continue to move forward. So as you're walking in this community, and let me just assume this to be true, that as you're established and firm in your faith, this is the hope that you're going to have in the gospel. And he continues that this is the gospel that you have heard and has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, one of which I, Paul, have become a servant. All right, so as I read this, all that he's saying is, listen, this is what Christians do. They endure. They, they make it through. Now, here's why I say that. Imagine if it were the other way. Imagine if he's saying the if was conditioned upon my obedience. The problem, big problem for me, is that what that does is it makes reconciliation dependent upon me. And what, where Paul should have started in verse 19 is he should have said, um, most authority was given to Christ. Most fullness, not all fullness. In other words, Christ doesn't have all the authority to do this. You have some too. And he doesn't do that. It isn't contingent upon my obedience or my behavior. Christ has actually done this. And I'd say the language of the text even says that itself. So let me ask a couple of questions and then we're going to land this plane this morning. Let me go back to this question. What does Jesus really do? As we see this morning, I hope we see this, that Jesus actually reconciles. And what does that mean? Let me review that here quickly with you. What does reconciliation do? Number one, it restores friendly relations, meaning that if you're someone who's believed in Jesus Christ, you are now a friend of God. You're now a friend of God. His interest isn't to condemn or to anger, but to have friendly relations with you. Secondly, it frees us from the power of corrosive accusations. That's what it does. Now, if you're thinking with me at all this morning, and I know you are, um, you may be thinking about a couple questions. Um, and let me put one up here. This is a big one, very important uh, for me at least. And that is this, how can you tell the difference between an accusation and a healthy conscience or confrontation? How can you tell the difference between an accusation and a healthy conscience or a confrontation? Let me make this very specific. Uh, let's say that um, you're having um, coffee with someone and you start telling a story about someone who's not in the room. And later you feel like, you know what that was? That was gossip. That wasn't my story to tell. I told it because I just wanted affirmation in that space, but I I feel bad that I told it. I I shouldn't have. Now, what is that? Is that an accusation? Or is that your healthy conscience? If someone comes to you and says, you know what? Um, Can we talk? Because I have an issue with you, and there's something that went on, and we need to talk about it and sit down and, and share it and they share it with you, is this a healthy confrontation or is this an accusation? How do you know? Some of you, let's say, and some of us get stuck in different places in various addictions. In times of pain and difficulty, maybe you turn to pornography, maybe you turn to alcohol, maybe you turn to drugs, maybe you turn to 
walking away from the family, whatever it is you might turn to. And in that moment, when you kind of get in a better state, you start to feel like that wasn't the right thing to do. What is that? Is that an accusation or is that a healthy conscience, right? How do we tell what's happening in this space? It's a very important idea, and I just want to put it this way to you, because I think this can be answered pretty clearly, and I hope it's helpful for you. Um, I would say this, how do you tell the difference? And it's really about this. It's what you're left feeling afterward. So in each of those, if you're after the coffee shop, you have a moment and you're driving home and you think, I'm not sure that was right. Or you're having a meeting with someone and you're afterwards reflecting on it like, hmm, this is weird. Is that an accusation or is that a healthy confrontation? Or you've gone into your addiction again and on the back end of it, you're like, I don't feel right. What is that? Is that an accusation or is that a healthy conscience? It's what you're left feeling right after you have that prick, right after that in space and time. And here's the deal. The Holy Spirit, I believe, uses kindness to call us back to Christ. The Holy Spirit uses kindness to call us back to Christ. The only way I can do this is to put both of these up at the same time. The Holy Spirit uses kindness to call us back to Christ, but Evil uses contempt to call us to condemn ourselves. Evil uses contempt to call us to condemn ourselves. Here's what that means. You're in the coffee shop. You have had a a situation where you did say something about someone else that you shouldn't have said. And it is right that you feel wrong about that, that you feel like there was something in me that was pricked, and that was indeed gossip. Now, what do I do with that? Is that a healthy conscience? Is that an accusation? The healthy conscience, the Holy Spirit uses that conscience, but immediately after you feel that, if you feel the kindness of God calling you to repentance, Romans 2, 4 says, do not show contempt for the mercy and the kindness of God. Do you not know it's the kindness of God that leads you to repentance? The Holy Spirit will want to work in you not to condemn you because you are free from accusation. The evil one will say, you're a loser because you keep gossiping, because you keep getting stuck in porn, because you keep getting stuck in alcohol, because you keep acting that way at work. You are a loser and hide it from people. That is contempt that will be used to condemn you. You are free from that. That is the power of reconciliation. The Holy Spirit will still prick your conscience. You will hear it, and you will rightly respond to it, and you'll think, this wasn't right. Now, what happens immediately afterwards? The Holy Spirit will draw you with a kindness to the mercy of God to say, come back to the gospel for me. Come back, come back, come back, come back. Come here, come here. Before you throw more tomato soup on yourself, hold on. Before in your contempt for your own failure, you start to condemn yourself again. Romans 8 tells us we are free from condemnation. That is what Jesus does. He puts that glass on our image and says that accusation can't stick. The healthy conscience will say, yeah, I did something wrong. And you will keep doing things wrong, and I keep doing things wrong. We will be in this boat for a long time together. It's what happens immediately after that that's so important. The Holy Spirit draws with kindness back to Christ. Evil uses contempt to condemn you for being such a failure, for being someone who will never get it, will never measure up, who won't ever be like those other people. That's an accusation. That Jesus on the cross in physical space, time, and history said, I want people to believe in me because I want to bring you peace. (laughs) I don't want all this strife in you. I don't want all this anxiety in you. 
I'm going to do that by putting all the fullness of God in Jesus, sending him to the cross. And when you believe, Jesus does reconciliation. and You are free from accusations that are corrosive and kill you. So let me ask these two questions here. One question, one more statement. What do you hear more often as you engage with your own self and the world around you and the people around you? Kindness or contempt? What do you hear more often? What do you traffic in more often? What motivates you more often? The kindness of God or the contempt of the evil one? Second statement, final thing I just want to say in this, and that is that faith in Christ's work on the cross means that I have been reconciled. And I want to encourage you to revisit that. Faith in Christ's finished work on the cross means that I have been reconciled. I am a friend of God. You are a friend of God. You are free from accusation. Now, you still may get soup thrown on you, but you have that glass protection there, and it will not go away. That is what faith in Christ does. What does Jesus really do? He reconciles. Friends, I just hope I want you to be free. I want you to be free. I want you to be free from all of the stuff that can tear you down and hold you down. I want you to be free from shame and guilt and contempt and condemnation. I think Jesus has already done it. And I want to invite you again, over and over and over, to tell yourself the story of the gospel as you reflect on your own parenting, on your own role as husband or wife, or in your dating relationships or in your future hopes and dreams with your career. And all that you're comparing yourself to, just take a minute. Take a minute. Remember the gospel. Jesus frees you from any accusation, cleans you with no blemish. You've been made in his image. And this is what Jesus really does. He reconciles you. You're a friend of God. Will you pray with me? Our good God and Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help us in this life that we're in, in which it feels like sometimes tomato soup is flying all over the place. We look in the mirror and we see what's wrong with us. We look at our week and think of what we can or can't accomplish. And sometimes look back with pride on what we've done and sometimes look back with contempt on what we wish we would have done and how much we've missed the mark. And other people sometimes tell us where we're falling short and can't measure up to maybe what our parents think or what our, you know, cousins, aunts, and uncles, or peers think, and we just feel like we're striving sometimes, just trying to get somewhere. It brings such bondage and anxiety and stress. <laughs> then there's Jesus dying on the cross saying, I, I've, I've come to reconcile all of you to make you friends of mine, to free you clean you from any blemish, to free you from any accusation. So Father, I pray for us as we walk daily in our responsibilities that we have at home, at work, at school, with our friendships, that you would help us remember the gospel daily. Help us to discern if what we're hearing is kindness or contempt. I pray that you would help us to be drawn by the kindness of the gospel and not to give contempt and condemnation any space but to be changed and moved 
by your mercy and your grace. Father, thank you for what you've done on the cross, sending Jesus to bring us reconciliation. In Jesus' name.